attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul, uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Context and Clarity has been called a community-based pro-practice masterclass for architects. It's awfully high praise, but since we began this journey back in April of 2020, We've certainly grown into a community of small firm architects, all focused on what matters most to their success. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you're the employee of a firm that's dreaming of going out on your own, or you've owned your own firm for 26 years. There's something here for everyone. And that's where you come in. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Context and Clarity Podcast. Every week, we have a conversation with an expert or a thought leader on things that matter most to the success of architects just like you. Then we go backstage with someone from our community and we talk about what we learned, what our biggest takeaways were, and how we're going to apply what we heard to our own businesses. Hey, Context and Clarity community. We've reached midsummer and we're taking a couple of weeks off. But I didn't want to leave you without a podcast episode because you might be traveling or sitting by a lake or on a beach, and you might want something to listen to. So we're bringing back another one of the most requested past episodes of Context and Clarity Live. This conversation is with James Petty. If you don't know James, he's an architect in New York, and he's incorporating the developer role into more and more of his projects. James literally wrote the book on being an architect and developer, one of them anyway. James's book is called Architect and Developer, A Guide to Self-Initiating Projects. Think about that subtitle for just a minute. James is on a mission to help other architects find their way to adding the developer role to their title too. By the way, he's also an active member of the Entree Architect and Context and Clarity community. We get so much interest in the architect as developer topic, not only from other Context and Clarity community members, but also from students across the country. 
So this just had to be one of those conversations that we brought back for an encore. I thought this was a great conversation, and I really appreciate James for sharing all of his knowledge. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So the first question I think we've got to ask you is, what got you interested in development? Yeah, I mean, um, I I went to undergraduate uh, down at University of Houston, and then afterwards I went to go work in Europe for like five years, and um, and decided to go back to graduate school and was able to get into Yale University. And and when I went there, I sort of went there with the you know I already had a bachelor of architecture, so I wanted to go to graduate school with the idea of really polishing myself off and also trying to really hone in on what it was my life, the rest of my life was going to be about. And so I, I took that opportunity to really focus on professional practice in a lot of respects. Um, I always knew that I wanted to start my own practice, but the, the, the sort of like getting, getting to that point seemed to be so mysterious or mm-hmm. either you're born wealthy and with a lot of connections or you're lucky, I guess. Um, and so I spent a lot of my time in graduate school and seminars focusing on starting a practice on how people generate revenue uh, and, and these kinds of things. And I did a, a little self project where I interviewed um, the founders of Shop, uh, Work AC, and Allied Works, etc., on how they started their business. What, what were the first projects that they did? What was that nitty gritty first few years of being completely broke and working out of their basement and 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 before they got so famous in the way they are now? Um, and and you know that started getting my brain turning. I took a class with Keller Easterling, at, uh, who who told us in order to get into the class we had to bring a hundred thousand dollars. And she didn't mean cash. She meant, how do you find $100,000 out there in the world that could fund a project? Um, and so instantly, we, none of us had any idea this was going to be the premise of even getting accepted into the class. But 12 of us had to go out and figure out where are grants, where are programs where people have money that need things to be built. Because at the end of the day, there's there's a lot of money out there. And there's a lot of need for things that exists. And sometimes you just got to put the pieces together and you can make kind of make your own thing. And so this whole time, my, my head is kind of turning, my, you know, I'm starting to think about how are all these ways that I could start my own practice without actually having to find a client. Um, I started to become aware of um, Terry Tamarkin in New York City and DDG who were doing some, who were developing their own work. And so it was like, wow, there's a couple of these architects that are sort of doing their own development. And the more I started looking into it, the more I started finding more and more and more. And I started talking to these guys, talking to other people, and they were like, oh, you should go meet this guy and that guy. And, and suddenly it was just like, wait, there's actually a lot of people doing this, a lot more people doing this than I think you realize, part of which is because some of these guys don't necessarily advertise that they're doing this because there's no need. They're, you know, Most architects are advertising on the websites to find more clients. These guys don't need clients. They need financing. And the banks don't give a... Uh, <laughs> Uh, explicit about, uh, about what your pretty buildings look like. They want returns. Um, and so they don't necessarily advertise it, but they're doing it. Um, and so basically I started down this road as writing a sort of, um, a guide to myself on how, to, how I wanted to sort of move through my own professional life. Um, I, out of graduate school, I worked for an, uh, an office in the city, uh, doing a, a school in Brussels, and then afterwards ended up working for Peter Glock for five, the last five years doing architect-led design builds in New York and Connecticut, um, and and then just recently left there to finally just pull off the bandaid and, and do my own thing. Um, and so it, it's it's to me it's always been about how to launch a business. And a lot of the people that I spoke with, you know, it wasn't necessarily their end goal, or maybe they were smaller practices trying to build up 
or they were practices trying to, you know, foster a nest egg for long-term investments. Um, or it was people that was just some, you know, interested in, in, in it for an academic purpose or wanting to do work that they were otherwise not going to get hired to do. They weren't necessarily all in it because they ultimately wanted to be an architect uh, and developer. They kind of used development as a method to get to what they were actually interested in. And most of the time they ended up getting financially rewarded for that. Um, I've also been very interested on the ones who are not financially rewarded on that because that's the ones that people don't talk about enough. Um, and that's, you know, the real risk of it all. And I think ultimately that's what all of this is. It's what I've really learned about it is it's, it's just an, an amalgamation of professions to try to make things more efficient and to consolidate uh, and align financial interests in a project, which is what most of us are interested in. And most of us got into here because we want to make buildings. We want to make schools. We want to make something in our community. Um, and architecture is just a key, a part of that. And I think you touched on this earlier in the week that architecture is really a late part of that whole process you know the, the developers are are, are are the ones that are setting the foundation of what a project really is and what kevin cavanaugh out of guerrilla development calls phase zero which is where you know it's the foregrounding of a project on what it is is, is it a residential building is it a commercial building does it have these kinds of aspects is how much money are we going to set aside for public programming and all of that stuff architects generally never get a sense or a say in any of that but if you go back to our academic roots, that's what a lot of us are interested in. And so the only way to really get into that foregrounding is to jump in on that ground level uh, part of the whole building process, rather than just waiting for somebody to come to you with a program and a contract and say, here, we'll do this for a 6% fee and uh, do it tomorrow. Yeah, you know, the, you said that and you, you're in danger of setting me off off on one of my tangents <laughs> up on my uh, my soapbox but the way that you just said that you know really resonated with me because um here here's a question for everybody out there right if you if you're starting your work with programming maybe even feasibility study how late in the game are you right if that's your starting point how late in the game are you you, you I, I don't remember exactly how you just said it, but basically someone's dictating to you at that point what the project already is or already yeah. dictating what that project is. That's that's a that's a that's a new way for me to think about that. And so you may, I, I it may likely that. already have the property which already starts to say a lot about what the building is. And the other the other problem with all of that is once a developer or whoever it is has owns the property and or, or and and has that financing in place which they have to get all of that done before they hire the architect sometimes um but once all of that's done the, the the clock is on the time is ticking and all of the money is and all of the risk is at the highest point and so they want to go and and that's where the pressure generally comes from most architects clients who are just like let's go let's go let's go let's get this done tomorrow yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So you had a pretty advanced start because you I, that. So if anybody from my pro practice class is watching or listening right now, warning because I just got a great idea for our, our next class. But <laughs> you had Good. to show up with a hundred thousand um, dollars. So that that's a pretty advanced start for anybody that you know is in the audience right now that's thinking about um, uh, maybe becoming a developer or maybe dabbling in something. Uh, you're doing that in school at that point. So how do you go from there to writing the book, Architect and Developer? Um, you know, it, it originally was only going to be 
uh, interviews. Like I, I just I wanted to be able to talk to people, and I started doing that process and, and interviewing people and putting that together. And then I started reading a lot of textbooks, um, <laughs> really boring textbooks, but a lot of them are really informative. Um, the Urban Land Institute actually does put out really good, genuine products um, that are worth the hundred dollars they are that they cost. Um, and, and wanting to try to dissect a lot of that information to something that's a little more digestible to architects, um, even though there's no pictures in it, uh, there's no pictures in the book at all, but there's tries to be a, at least a little bit entertaining uh, and, and, and just little hits of like, how, how do you work through a port format in a very uh, ABC kind of way? Um, and what, what does NOI, ROI and all of this stuff mean? And what does it mean to other people? And if anything else, even if you don't, if, if you're quasi-interested in any of this stuff, if you don't go out and do it, what it does do, it, it, it enables you to have these discussions with your own clients about what it is that they're doing and where their, where their pain points are and how to sort of resolve those as an architect, as a regular commissioned architect. On your website, architectanddeveloper.com, it's on the front page. You have a, uh, an article or, or something called books, and there's a lot of resor- resources under there, which I think you talk about the ULI resources uh, in that, in that post or that article, uh, there's a wealth of, of knowledge in that post. Like James is saying, I mean, he's just got book after book after book and he's collected, uh, interviews and videos and, and all, all sorts of resources. So if you want to know more, go to architectanddeveloper.com and find those, uh, great wealth of knowledge there. So, as as you were doing these interviews and you were learning these things and assembling this knowledge, which of course became came your book. And for those of you that missed this at the beginning, the name of James's book is Architect and Develop: A Guide to Initiating Projects. Which I, I love the self initiating part of the the subtitle there. How did you how, how did you go from there? Or maybe 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 my timeline is off at this point, but how did you get from that point to actually starting to do some of your own projects and, and getting into the development side of things? Yeah, I guess a lot of it was trying to figure out how, how to do it, how to like, you know, I was looking at the work, especially in New York City. Uh, if you guys have seen the work of Alloy or DDG, um, Alex Barrett, they're, they're really good. Like these guys are doing really amazing works of architecture. Some of the DDG work is very, either you love it or you hate it. Like I've seen a lot of people online really hate it. There's the um, architecture shaming community on Facebook and their work gets on there every once in a while. But like, man, I love it. Um, it's very inventive. Um, but, and I, I'm like, how did these guys get to there? And then if you look at like The Real Deal, which is a, a, a magazine in the city for real estate, commercial real estate and residential real estate, um, the top 10 sales in Brooklyn is published every year. And the last couple of years, either DDG or Alloy is number one through five every single year. They're selling the highest, most expensive real estate in Brooklyn at the same time. Uh, and it's like, well, how, what, what's going on? I mean, you meet these guys. They're also really just great guys. And, uh, and, and the reality is they all started really small. They all started really humble in the backside of Brooklyn or backside of somewhere else. Did a very small project just to try to make it successful. Uh, and a lot of times they ended up self-performing a lot of these things to, to keep the prices down uh, and to, to make it a real, real project. Um, and so I, what I kind of learned through a lot of this process is what a lot of these guys did in the founding of all of it and, and how, how they were able to, to really get off the ground and, and get running 
Uh, and some of them are a little more forthcoming than others on, on uh, you know, hybrid arc out of Seattle said that in his very first project, he was able to pull out $80,000. And that $80,000 of cash was his seed money for his next project, which he lost $30,000. But then he took that $50,000 and got to the next project, which then he was able to like get bigger, a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Um, and so I took all of that information to try to understand, for me, what was the most basic way through this. Um, and that's what I really promote is keeping it, keep it simple, the KISS rule, keep it simple, stupid, and to start small and to take the smaller risks and try to build up for that. So for me, um, you know, my wife and I, we, we live in New York City. We work in New York City in a very tiny apartment. Um, and, and at one point we decided that we wanted to, um, try and, you know, find a place for the weekend, uh, a, a little outside of the city and also as a, as an excuse for our first project. And so we spent months looking around on the, uh, outer burbs of the, of New York and settled on a town called Beacon, which is an hour north. It's a very artsy town. There's a, um, a big museum, art museum here. It's got a lot of tourists coming from the city every day, um, especially on the weekends. Uh, and we have a mountain and, and basically we found, we spent another six months looking for property and, lost bid after bid after bid in a, in a really heartbreaking kind of scenario, finally got this perfect spot, perfect property that our realtor called us on a Saturday night. We were heading out to a party, called us around 11 p.m. said, can you be here tomorrow? We said, yes. Um, she found a property that was under a little bit undervalued, and it's a house on a double lot. The house is from 1890, hasn't been touched in 50 years. It was an old, older woman who passed away. This was perfect. This was exactly what we were looking for because the, the house is priced appropriately but as a house, it has two lots. And so basically the idea is that we, we, we bought the property. We were, able, we, we, we were the first ones to see it. We, we made an, uh, we made an offer before it ever went onto Zillow. Uh, we bought the piece of property. Um, we're renovating it right now. Hopefully it'll be finished very, very soon. Um, and then by the spring of next year, we'll break ground on the other lot to basically using that as free land to build a freestanding house. Uh, we'll sell this one, move into that one. Uh, take the $200,000 and and or $250,000 per person in capital gains exclusionary tax benefits, um, and uh, and then move on from there to a little bit bigger for a duplex or a triplex or something like that, and basically move up scale each each different time. Um, but by doing it this way, by buying a single family house, the risk is super low. Any bank is going to give you a loan, especially right now. Uh, mortgages are very cheap. Um, to do a construction loan in a new house, uh, you can also just get typical bank financing. As a homeowner, it's very easy. Going to the city to getting all the permitting, I, I went to the city and I'm like, listen, I'm the architect, I'm the contractor, and I'm the homeowner. And he was like, great, let me see your drawings. And he just stamped them and he handed them right back to me. And he was like, have fun. Uh, he, the inspector comes by every once in a while and he's a, he just chats with me. He's a great guy. It's easy peasy because I'm taking all the risk. I own the place uh, and I'm doing all the work. It's my license. Like, as long as I'm doing anything egregious, it's fine. So the barrier to entry is very low. Um, and I think that's the, that's the thing a lot of people don't don't think about is that it's actually not that hard because you all have to live somewhere. Why don't you just live? Why don't you just use that to your advantage and leverage it? That is what uh, DDG did. That is what Alloy did. They lived in their very first project. And most of the people that I talked to all lived in their subsequent projects because even if you have a eight unit building or a 10 unit building, you'll generally need some sort of lease ups before you get those big construction loans. And if you're, you yourself are signing on that lease, you're a person, you have an income, you have a business, uh, you're, you're it's legitimate and the banks will see that and they'll help sign and that'll help you get that loan for that that next construction project that's that's a great example and, you know you, you said one thing of course that that made me uh tickled me a little bit you said and we have a mountain 
that's one thing that no one in Indianapolis has ever said. So congratulations. <laughs> when you come out of New York, New York City's actually got a great range of things. There's beaches on one side, there's mountain, there's Connecticut. Uh, and so you got to like kind of figure out what you want in your backyard. And so we had to make that decision, which was mountain. I think you pretty much just answered this question, but here was one of the questions that people, a lot of people were asking. And um, Javier has said this morning, how do you find the resources to fund the projects? I think that's a that's a, a common thing that I you know I myself was always curious about in the beginning when I started looking into this and nearly all my friends always asking the same thing is that like I'm an architect I don't have any money it's like nobody spends their own money on a house not even a not even a billionaire is going to spend cash on building a house you know why interest rates are so low why would you do that you can put that billion dollars to work somewhere else and and take out a bank loan and make and it's it's financially it's more feasible like it's it's the better way to do it. Uh, most of your, pro if any of you guys work on commercial projects or larger projects, you're probably used to rec a requisition process uh, where your clients have to get a bank loan and build a building. You yourself will have to get a bank loan. The money that goes to make a building is called a capital stack. And I think, Jeff, you were talking about that earlier this week on, on the Context and Clarity. And a capital stack is basically just um, the accumulation of all the money that's going to be required to make a building. Now, the vast majority of time, the substantial amount of that capital stack is bank financing. It's just a loan. It's like a mortgage. Um, and that might be different. It might be 70%. It might be 80% of the overall fees you might need. It's not nearly ever going to be 100%. The banks did that before 2008. They won't do it again. Um, but you, that's that's part of the money, right? So now you just got to come up with the rest of it. Now, the rest of that is where you got to get creative on how you're going to get it. Um, it can be similar to like a mortgage where you put 20% down. You can get an FHA, FHA mortgage and put 3.5% down. You can get a 203k loan, which is an FHA approved mortgage from the government of the United States of America, backed by Fannie Mae. And for 3.5% down, you can get enough money to buy a piece of property and renovate it. Um, and that's what some people have done. It is a very low barrier to entry way of doing it. Um, I considered doing it. Ultimately, we, we didn't do it on this one, but um, you basically just want to try to get the, you don't need money to do a project. You just need the delta between the money the bank will gonna get, is going to get you and what you need for the rest. And that might be, that's where people do get investors. That's where people do, maybe it's cash from your, sal from your salary job or your other businesses. Um, that's where people have looked into crowdfunding now. That's where people are trying to find all kinds of other ways of generating that last 20 to 30 percent. Many architects are using their architectural fees uh, to go to the bank as long as you have, this is very, this is a lot, very convoluted conversation, but like if you have, you need to basically make multiple types of businesses to make all this work, right? You need your architecture business, you need to develop a business, maybe you have a contracting business, all of that. You put contracts together between all yourselves, so you need to write yourself a contract and bill yourself an invoice. And if you do that for your architectural fees and for the, the fees, the, the time that you're going to have to spend as the architect, not as a developer, going to the city, getting the permits and doing all of that, uh, that's real value. And you, if you make a invoice to yourself and you pay that invoice, you can take that to the bank and said, listen, I've already spent 7% of all of the required money on, on this architect that I've seen myself, but it's this company. And I've already spent that money. I've also already bought the property and that represents 15% of the, of the value. So now I'm already at the 20 something percent of, 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 of everything you need. Can you just give me the last piece? I think I already have enough value in here. Sometimes the answer is yes. Um, sometimes the answer is okay, but maybe like $5,000 more dollars. That's all it takes. Like a lot of these guys, they're able to start a project on not too much money. Like you can really start small and, and, and try to crank up the lever a little bit on the first few projects. Um, I think that's the better way to do it. Except you don't want to get too far ahead of your skis and 
do a $7 million project right off the bat. I mean, I think that's what Lance Psycho and them did. They, they started off pretty big. Um, I wouldn't do that. But um, for these smaller projects, it doesn't take much. And then, you know, you had mentioned, Jeff, on um, the byline of the book, the, the, the self, self-initiating work. I mean, my whole thing on that is it's not always about, it's not always about getting that loan or making the money. There's Moss Design out of, um, they're out of Cambridge, I think. Uh, but they recently opened up an office in Poughkeepsie, New York, and their whole impetus right now is they go and find out what Poughkeepsie needs. Uh, what, what does the city need? What, what if we had this thing here, this project there, this thing there? They figure it out. They design it. They figure out how much money it's gonna it's gonna take to do all of that, and then they go they go find the money. They find investors. They find government grants. They find funding in other ways, and they make the project happen. That's not necessarily the same as like what Jonathan Siegel is doing and everything like that, but it's very much self-initiating stuff. Um, Catherine Darnstadt out of Chicago is doing the similar, had done similar things on making little community parks by just like raising money and then going to the city and say, Hey, look, I'm raising this money. Can we make these parks? And they'd say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll put the rest of the money down in. Uh, and then suddenly she has a park to design and her little part of Chicago gets an amenity. I mean, it's, it's money's out there. It's not always about just like, where can I get some cash and, and, and make several million dollars worth of building? Uh, that's not how it usually works. It's usually a, it's this capital stack of a whole bunch of different parts of money that come together to make, make projects happen. So someone, someone had an idea this morning. We don't know whether it's feasible or not, but, um, Michael Jern wanted to know if you could partner with a landowner to avoid having to finance the land during development. So somehow make the landowner, um, involved with the whole development so that you don't actually have to spend money on the land until it's time to build. So the Absolutely. Landowner brings I mean, their equity to it. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, the, that would be their equity into the project. At the end of the day, I don't think the bank is going to care. That you personally have, they, they just care that the project has the equity. Uh, and, and if you're if you're partnering with another person, you probably want to create your own little LLC or whatever for that partnership of those two people. And then that partnership owns the land, even though maybe you your stake in that partnership is you know the the, the other percent that doesn't include the land. Maybe your stake in the partnership is thirty percent and there's seventy percent because they're bringing the land. But then that land gets you that equity percent that you need for the bank. And a lot of times if you're able to get, so for example, for us, you know, we got this land basically free because it was, it, we bought a house that already had it included. Um, and so what that means, but we can't just go straight to the bank and say, Hey, look, we have this van, this, this land. They'll be like, it's not, it's worth nothing. You literally pay nothing for it. But if you sit on it for, I think it's like a year to two years, it's called seasoning. Uh, suddenly the, the, what you paid for two years ago is irrelevant now. Now it's like, okay, well, what's a comp? Well, that piece of land goes for $180,000 otherwise in the city. So uh, that has a huge value. And so that's a large percentage of whatever your construction cost is going to be. There you go. You got your 20%, your 30%. Yeah. You know, a lot of these, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. When, when we had the topic yesterday of what's stopping you, what's holding you back, I fully expected that the very first comment, the very first thing was going to be, was going to be money. And so, uh, you know, we get into this conversation, totally understandable why, uh, I mean, you, you just rattled off and we've got several people commenting, uh, this, this is going to be worth two or three or four listenings, you know, going back to this, which is fantastic. Um, there's a lot of information here and a lot of strategies that we're touching on. So one question is maybe we, we've got an audience of an awful lot of architects here. Some some in the audience won't be, right? They'll be from other professions and things, but a lot of them, a lot of this audience is architects. 
So if we assume that today they are an architect, but they are not a developer, what is the toughest part of making the transition from, forgive me, everybody, but I'm going to put, I'm going to put this in quotes, just an architect to architect and developer? What's the, what's the toughest part about making that transaction or transition from one, one to both, maybe? It's got to be it's got to be the uh, taking on the risk or, or having an appetite for risk because that's that's but that's that's this that's the that's the whole thing right like I think that's what money aside I think money's the quick snap thing that people first come to and think about all this but after if they think about it for more than five seconds then they'll probably start to think about risk they'll think about losing the shirts they'll think about oh my god like I knew of a guy who developed a thing and lost the business and blah 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 whatever um, you guys are, I think it's understood. Architects have a lot of risk. They have a lot of upside, right? And they're getting, cause they're getting paid for that risk. You're forgetting the fact that architects have just as much risk, but we're, 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 our upside is capped to a fixed fee. Like it's, it's ridiculous. Um, you can, you know, if that building leaks or there's water coming in the basement of, of a, of a project that you're an architect of record on, like you're going to get called on that. If anything goes wrong in any of our past buildings, we're going to get sued. Uh, it, it, if our project has been done for six months, we don't have any more payment coming in. I'm still going to call me and absorb my time. And at the end of the day, all an architect does is sell time. Uh, and so it's like, what am I supposed to do? Not take the call? There's no more fees coming in. What if the what if the client stops paying? What if they pay late and you still have to pay your staff? Like the risks are so high on being an architect. Uh, and that's just an architect as a as as a owner. Like if you're an architect and you're an employee, there's still a lot of risks. You're, 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 risk, you're selling. <laughs> you could get fired tomorrow. Like the two, the last couple of, uh, in the last year, so many offices cut salaries by 20%. That's a pretty big risk and you have no control over that. You're just an employee. Like all, there's so much risk in our profession and in everybody's lives that they may not necessarily realize that they're really undertaking. Um, the difference in a developer is that they're factoring that in and they're just getting, that's the whole, I'm getting paid for it thing. Um, and so I think a lot of it is just absorbing that, understanding it. And jumping on it. And I think that does take a specific mindset, which I just happen to be all in on. Um, I, like I said, I moved to Germany, uh, without speaking German and got a job. And my boss thought that was hilarious. And that was part of the reason he hired me and put me in front of all of his clients. Um, but you know, you got to have that sort of go getter attitude to do that, I think, but not, I don't know. It's not for everyone for sure. Well, it, you used a word here a minute ago. You said control, and I think that's a big thing, right? I, as architects, oh, yeah. as, you know, you just described it, right? You're going to do the, the the design, the the CDs, go through CA, the thing is substantially complete, but you're still on the hook, and you have no control, no real control over the way it was constructed, yeah. uh, any of the things, um, and and I think having control, and I, you know, I mentioned earlier. I've, done a little bit of this. And I always thought that the more that we did, the more that we performed, the more that we had control over, as long as we were doing our jobs and we were paying attention to the things that we needed to pay attention to, the actual more control we had over the risk. And I thought that was sort of the ultimate payoff. Well, financially, you, certainly. But where, the, where the circle really comes around, though, is when you realize that when the, the architects, the architect and developers that are really big, DDG and Alloy, uh, I keep coming back to them, but there's so many of them. Um, they hire architects. Like okay. Nice. Because why would they take on that risk for a stupid low fee? Like, it's just built in. And they can just, like, wait, wait, here's one I can just buy my way out of for, for a couple of percentage points. No problem. 
So everybody in the uh, in the audience is now trying to get their head wrapped around what you just said. Hopefully you heard that. He said that these architects as developers who maybe have moved more towards the development development side now are hiring architects of record for their projects because they understand of the my words the absurdity of the risk on the architect side. So so Gorilla Development has done amazing stuff out of Portland. Uh, they're really big on the, they started, they were really the first ones that did crowdfunding, but in a crowdfunding of a, of a regulation DUA. Um, and they, um, his very first project was really wild. He, 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 he was able to acquire a piece of property and he wanted to develop a building. And he went through, he was an employee of an office, of a mid-sized office. He went to his boss and said, can I hire you as my architect? And can then I work on that job as the project manager? And his boss was like, okay, here's a contract. They signed it. And so, at the, you know, every other week he would, he would get a little paycheck and then sign a big check to his boss. But it was his way of actually mitigating the risk of all of the problems of being an architect on a job. That's a pretty amazing story. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely interesting and, and weird. It's a, it's a very, it's one I hadn't heard before. There's a lot, I mean, but there's a lot of these guys. That's the thing is they're not, they're not using their cleverness or their intelligence to design a better box. Um, they're using it to design a way of putting money together and making a project happen. And a lot of these guys have done, and girls have done really interesting things in that way. Uh, Synecdoche um, out of Ann Arbor has started approaching businesses in Ann Arbor that she knew was going to take off the ground and approach them ahead of time and, 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 and started telling, asking them, Hey, do you, do you have an architect yet? Can we go look at properties together? Can we do all this stuff? And then she ends up owning a small percentage of their business moving forward. So she does this sort of foregrounding of, of finding them property, finding a way to make the property work for them, uh, and then designing it. And then she takes a little bit part of the building of it and then owns a piece of it at the end of the day and collects, collects rent. Like it's, it's an interesting way of designing a way to make the project happen rather than just trying to design the building. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great structure. So here's a, here's a question that is, I just want to know the answer to it when, when it came up this morning. So, um, what's the scariest or most risky project you've undertaken? I mean, you, you'd mentioned earlier that people don't talk about ones that don't work out that well. You really don't hear about them. So, yeah. So, I mean, um, I, uh, I, I got, I'll stop talking about DDG after this. Uh, and I hope nobody from their office, Peter Guthrie's not listening. Um, I promise. But anyways, uh, it's kind of well known now. That they're, they, they've started scaling up, 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 up. And there's this project they got that just finished construction or is just finished construction on the Upper East Side of the city on 88th Street. Um, and their concrete subcontractor bankrupted as that building was like halfway in the air. And that is a very big building and that had a lot of money into it. And DDG was all in on that and there was no way they could fail. And so that building became I, I don't even know what's going on in the world of DDG right now. I know that they, they de-staffed a ton of people. They've scaled way down. They've had to cut corners. And I believe that, I don't know if Peter Guthrie's out now, but I've heard rumors that he will be out soon. Um, because that, that as a business model, that was maybe a little bit too far. Um, but they, they sort of reached, they reached an area where they could no longer build the building with the money that they had. Um, they definitely went out ahead of their skis and, and because of, because it was such a big building and it was only halfway done at the time when the most expensive subcontractor defaulted, there wasn't a lot you could do other than spend a whole, a whole ton of money to, to, to get the building done. 
Um, obviously, if that when that building sells uh, as it's selling now, uh, they should recoup all that fee by by a ton. But I don't know whether or not that's happening. It, I think it's another thing to wait for another year year or two to to figure out. It's gonna be interesting to watch. I know there's an Alex Barrett has also had a little bit of issues in scaling up. He he did two big. He scaled up a little too fast as well. Did two projects at the same time that were massive, and and had to scale down his staff, get rid of his office and everything as he's trying to sell these units out. Um, but as long as they sell, he should be totally fine. And he, uh, he's a good guy, so it should be should be good. But there's a moment in here where a lot of these guys are really on the edge of their toes with all of their money. But kind of segues into Isra's comment because she, you know, someone going bankrupt in the middle of the project how do you uh israel wants to know how do you find reliable subcontractors i wish i could tell you where my electrician is right now i've been calling him every single day for the last three weeks sorry um but uh subcontractors are very difficult i suggest waiting another 30 or 40 years until robots start building buildings because at least they'll show up every day um <laughs> maybe you don't have to wait that long someone could start working on that it's there's a lot of people working on that what do you think autodesk is doing and why they're not creating the next Revit. They're not interested in the next Revit. They're interested in building buildings. Um, the um, the sub, That's so hard. Like It is so hard to find any subcontractors right now, mainly because there's it's, so, it's such a hot market and there's so many other things for them to do. And I've been on many job sites as the architect uh, where the sub, subs just quit because there's more money to be made elsewhere. And, and it's like it's such a pain in the butt because it just drives up cost and delays everything. Because somebody doesn't want to do the job that they were contracted to do, um, it, it's so hard, and I think that's what drives a lot. That's what drives a lot of these guys who are developing buildings to also self-perform work. That is why a lot of these guys are also builders, um, besides being architects and developers. That's why Glock Plus builds a lot of their stuff, is because at the end of the day, it gets so it gets so frustrating to watch somebody do such a bad job for so much money and you're like, well, wait a second, I can just do that myself. And as an, as a, as a firm owner, you realize that why am I paying this, this, this carpenter 80,000, the equivalent of 80,000, $90,000 a year when I can, I can hire a recent graduate from architecture school for like 40,000. Uh, and that guy is going to be, he's going to work 12 hours a day and he's going to be super excited and he's going to go hang that door just perfect. Um, so to be honest, that's a lot of why Glock Plus and a lot of these other offices do this, uh, design build and have a lot of staff on hand is because at the end of the day, young architects are cheaper than carpenters and they'll do a much, they'll have a lot more passion and actually do the job right. It's, you know, it's all about building the right team. Now, you know, t take, sorry, apologies to everybody for a sports analogy, but if, you know, if you're somebody like the Chicago Cubs or the Chicago Bears and you can't for the life of you put together uh, the right players at the right time, then you're going to really struggle. But, uh, and it's, and it's not necessarily easy to put them together, but that's, that's ultimately what we have, <clears throat> excuse me, what we have to attempt to do. And, um, again, I'm going down the baseball road, but I'm going deeper. Sorry, everybody. Uh, the Atlanta Braves built their dynasty in the nineties on their farm team. So almost everybody from the World Series uh, Atlanta Braves came from the farm team, which would be the equivalent of the recent architecture grads. So Rod wants to know if you could talk a bit about the developers who have tied community enriching elements into their developments. I, there's there's definitely a lot of that. So, you know, um, a big difference between many develop Historically, a lot of developers came from a construction background and more in the last decade or two, it's or a couple of decades, it's been more of a financial background. So people who are historically just developers have an MBA or something like that. 
Uh, architecture school tends to facilitate, as you guys know, a lot of more social agendas, uh, a little more left-leaning and, and things that we care about things. We just want to make a better place for all of us, really. Um, and so a lot of these guys who are architects and developers, they're probably doing a little more for all of us than the straight developers. Um, there's some good examples out there. Like I said, Catherine Darnstadt is really focused on a lot of that stuff from Moss Design. Um, Guerrilla Development, uh, their second crowdfunding campaign was really interesting because it was a, they were raising $300,000 as part of a capital stack. And again, all, none of these, I want to be very clear, there was no buildings that crowdfunded the entire capital stack. All of them were literally crowdfunding the mezzanine debt, which is just that little piece that they need to then go to the bank and say, hey, look, I've got this amount of money. And so Kevin uh, raised $300,000 in three days. Um, and and the, it was for a project that was going to be an uh, SRO for homeless people in Portland. And it was going to give homeless people a very cheap, very cost-effective place to live. And that and, and the his target rent was the exact state amount that the state of Oregon was giving homeless people that said, hey, if you can find a place to live for, I think it was like $400 a month, we'll give you this $400 voucher. And so Kevin was like, well, how do I make a place that can give you a room for $400? Um, and so he figured out the money. But the only way to make that work was to do this crowdfunding and offer people a 5% return, which is a very low return, especially right now in the stock market, you can make way more than 5%. So if you're a typical developer and a typical person and you want to, you're trying to raise money, nobody's going to give you an investment for a 5% return. It's just not enough, especially not in real estate where there are risks. Um, but because his had a social agenda and a social slant to it, he raised the money in three days because at the end of the day, people would rather have take a lower return for a social cause than, than just go for maximum money. Uh, and I thought that was a very interesting way that Kevin was able to handle the situation. Beyond that, there's other, in, in the city, there's Alloy that has a lot of amenities and some other developments, but some of it, like the schools, are really just um, an incentive to all developers in New York City, whereas uh, the city of New York has not financed a school in the last two or three decades. Every single school that's been built is, is built under a... Um, uh, a program where if a developer includes a school in their building and pays for it completely, they're allowed to build a much taller. So like the shop tower that, that split and everything like that, they all have a school in the basement and that's the way that they're able to build up so high. So Alloy is currently building a very super tall tower in Brooklyn and the way they were able to get that height was by building a school at the bottom, which is a, it's a public amenity, but it's just kind of a developer tool that a lot of developers use. That's really interesting. And so that's, hmm. I assume that's a pretty New York, New York specific example. It's a clever way for the city to get new schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of new schools all throughout the city, and it's all because of that. <laughs> Interesting. So Ed, Ed had a question. I don't know if we have time to address it, but it's still an interesting question about an um, an MBA in real estate development. Is that kind of program worth it? I so a lot more schools are coming onto this. I think Columbia. I, I think Columbia was really one of the first schools to have a more integrated. Uh, um, architecture school and real estate together as a program, um, and and then Berkeley came on, and there's a lot of other ones too. Now at Yale, there's a you can do an architecture school half and then get an MBA and a, a mark at the same time. Um, and now I see a lot more schools trying to do it. Um, I I don't know. I mean, for one, the MBA is getting more watered down as a degree uh, in general. Uh, number two. Um, my friends, I know several people that have gone through these programs. They've all come out the other end, and they just work for a developer. Like they just become developers, like an actual developer, or they work for one. Um, so if that's what you want to do, that's probably a good angle. Uh, your architectural knowledge will be valuable to them. Um, 
But if for you to go and spend the time there, I mean, I would only do it if you're also going to be very, I wouldn't do it in a Zoom world. I would go there to be integrated into an environment to, you know, business school is about making friends, really. It's about doing all the extracurriculars outside of business school. It's not about being in the classroom. It's about being on the rowing crew and and, and the hockey team and, and going and doing events together and, and making lifelong friends and, and bouncing ideas off each other and learning from each other. It's it, um, So if you're going to do it, I would make sure to do it in an environment like that. And obviously, if you want to do it at the highest end, Wharton is the best school for real estate in America. Uh, and, and that would be a really invaluable experience. One of the partners, AJ, which is one of the partners of that alloy, uh, has a Wharton degree. Um, so, I mean, that's it can be valuable as long as you do it right. So just just now you said that you, you could be a real developer. So what is the difference between an architect developer and a developer? I meant for like a for a, a company who is just this. They're just developers. They're yeah, they're just, the just developers. They hire they hire right. architects to do the work. And I have lots of friends that have gone that route. Um, they were initially paid much better than we were out of graduate school. Um, all of that starts to change after. I mean, architect salaries do jump up after time, uh, especially in New York, um, as long as you jump around enough. Um, and, um, but their lives are generally not as pleasant. They don't seem as happy as we do, I guess. I don't know. That's, okay. that's interesting. I love them, but they don't seem happy. <laughs> Mark says, uh, take the money for the, the MBA and bring it to the bank for a loan for Honestly, you could probably, my, yeah, I thought about that myself. I thought about going back and getting an MBA and doing another degree and spending more time in college but you know honestly it's going to be cheaper for me to, to flip a house and build a house uh than it is to go to school it's actually going to be the inverse i will actually make more money than i would have gone and done a job or whatever um and i feel like you're going to learn just as much by doing yeah by doing it at the end of the day yeah. a big building and a small building is you buy it for x you put in y and you try to make sure you get more than that at the end of the day at the end of the project and you can you can do that in an academic sense and and, and everything and and spend a lot of money on that, or you can just go do it and figure it out. And as long as you do it, my whole point about doing it on an existing house is, is the risk is super low because if you fuck it up, just go sell it. Sorry, I cuss a lot. Uh, if, if you if you mess it up, you, you just resell it. A house has value. And in the time of COVID, anything will sell. It doesn't really matter. Um, and so if you lost $5,000 or $10,000 or $20,000, that's still cheaper than an MBA. Um, uh, but odds are you may be able to, if you're smart enough, you're going to make a hundred thousand dollars or something like it's, it's not so hard. So in your work right now, how much would you classify as traditional architecture practice versus, uh, architect as developer or, or is there any? Um, well, right. Yeah. Right now I think there's actually less architecture because it's, to me that, that part is easy and fast and, and just make, you know, I, I think a lot of time. People already have ideas in their heads about how they would do something or, or design something. And so it's, you know, it's a matter of carrying through that process. But a lot of it is, uh, mentally is, is figuring out all of the other things of making the project happen and getting it done. Mm -hmm. Do you have any clients right now or are you your own client on all your projects? I do have some clients. The, the problem right now with clients is, um, is like how much, how much do you charge them? Right. Cause like I don't, I'm not trying to be competitive, but the, the bigger, the, here's the bigger problem. Um, somebody recently was, was giving me a comment on, on my fees being a little high, right? They wanted my fees to be lower because they can get their, this done somewhere else. Well, my time is actually worth more for myself than it is for somebody else. Um, and I think that's a, 
the, the bigger barrier to entry here is the, t the money, the risk, but it's really the time. It's the time that you, it takes to do all of this. But once you start hiring yourself, you realize that you're more valuable to yourself than you are to somebody else. And so why would I, why would I charge that? I'm going to make what with working at per hour for this guy when for myself, I can make way more. Uh, and, and if I, if I spend all of my time working for other clients, then I'm at risk for screwing all of this other stuff up and, and screwing up my own projects, uh, which is not good to me. So basically I, I, I have to lose clients by giving very high bids and seeing if they'll take it. And if they'll take it, then that's literally, it's the cost of my time. Yeah, that makes sense. So maybe, maybe the way to round out this conversation is to ask, um, do you have a piece of advice or, you know, some advice for any of the architects that are in the audience right now that are ready, you know, or, or think they're ready to start to just take go. the leap? What advice? Just go. Just and, and I think, I think, I think, uh, one of the, you know, one of the advices I got on just starting a practice in general from ARO and then subsequently what I learned from re talking with, um, the Up Studio New York, which I think are a fantastic group of guys is that you have to do what you want to do. Like if you ultimately want to do high-end residential houses, you need to go develop a high-end residential house because that's what's going to get you the work later. If you spend all of your time doing stuff that you don't want to do, you will continue to do stuff that you don't want to do because that's what everybody is going to pay attention to. Um, the Up Studio is fantastic. You guys got to go to their website. It's theupstudio, I think, .com. Um, they started with the development because they were doing these not so great renovation projects because that's all people would hire them for. And they, they bought a piece of land. They built a really cool modern house that had nothing to do with anything they had done before. And then people started hiring them left and right. And now their work is fantastic. And now they are really a hot shot design studio in the city. All the, and nobody was going to see that beforehand. You know, they only got that by going out there and doing it themselves. And they're, I don't think they're developing anymore. They're interested in that. They just wanted to build that billboard so that way they could, um, they could be the architect that they wanted to be. Yeah, that's a super cool story. That's we run across that all the time. How do I break into this? How do I find more clients like this? There's a great example of of uh, the way that they did it. Appreciate there that been, story. There, there've been a couple questions about either should you build something and hold onto it, or should you then rent it out? So, kind of this example of building this house that you want everybody to see. If they and I, recently there was an article about architects making buildings and then. Airbnb, keeping them for Airbnb so a lot of people can be exposed to them. It just reminded me of that. So what would you generally say? Does this depend on the project? Is it better to sell, like hold? Yeah. or? So. It's probably going to be part of the pro forma and figuring out what financially makes sense. Unfortunately, rent, renting is just so hard to, to make Like uh, in, in this country. like You, you make a building, it costs... The, the, Rental market is set by them. The rental market is what it is, right? Like if people spend two thousand dollars a month on rent, they're not going to spend twenty four hundred in that area. Like you can get there's certain top ends, but like it's going to cap out. And so you can only build something. It's really hard to build something and capitalize on it correctly unless you're building a certain scale. Um, I think long term, building it and holding it and renting it is a better solution for you to have a sort of passive income. Uh, and moving all of that along, but it, it comes with added risks and management, and all that stuff as well. But in the beginning, most people tend to build and sell because they need to refill their coffers. They need to get that cash so they can build the next project. Um, holding it and renting it is difficult to do in the beginning because you just you just need that money to move on to the next project. 
That's great advice and a great, great experience there. You have given us a lot of knowledge bombs, a lot of great information here. Really appreciate the conversation today. It's been awesome. Thanks. Well, what did you think? Did you hear something in there that you can use in your practice today? If you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. And if you want more of the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week, give us a thumbs up and subscribe wherever you consume podcasts. If you like content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment, and it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And one last thing before you go. If the topic of today's episode is of particular interest to you, join me over on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. That's where every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern, I host Context and Clarity Conversations, and we take topics like this, and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time to try to find more clarity around the things that matter most to you. So thanks for listening. I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community and your practice and how you can support those around you. We'll be back here again next week. And in the meantime, I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern so that we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context is. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging 
and chart your own path to architectural success.